All right, we are in Ezekiel chapter 6. We're going to look at the 14 verses that constitute that chapter. We're going to call it, as you see there on the screen, Mountain Do's and Don'ts. A family trip to the mountains is a common and wholesome occurrence here in the shadow of the beautiful Sierra Range. It was common in 6th century Israel too, but not wholesome. It was in the mountains, in the wilderness, that the Jews went to worship the gods of the Canaanites. Gods like Molech. I've been taught he was represented by a small figure of bronze or brass with outstretched arms. The idol was hollow to accommodate coals that would make the entire figure burning hot. It was upon those burning hot arms that the Canaanites and later the Jewish idolaters would sacrifice their live children to Molech. Or perhaps it was a fertility god or goddess that you went into the wilderness to worship. If so, you engaged in all manner of illicit, immoral, sexual activity. King Hezekiah in the 8th century removed these idols in the wilderness. They returned after his death. King Josiah removed them in the 7th century. But by the time of Ezekiel in the 6th century, they were back and frequented by the Jews. Through Ezekiel, God will speak out against the mountains. He's talking about the idols and the idolatry that was being practiced in those wilderness areas. After the dramatic enactment of the siege and ruin of Jerusalem in chapters 4 and 5, Ezekiel delivered two powerful sermons. We know them as chapters 6 and 7. Chapter 6 focuses on the idolatry as the cause for God's action, severe action against His chosen people. Chapter 7 depicts the nature of the judgment. Both these sermons start this way, chapter 6, verse 1, where we read, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying... By the way, it might be wrong to think Ezekiel only uh, delivered this message this one time. Today it is not uncommon for a minister to deliver a message more than once. Uh, There's even guys that, you know, visit uh, churches and and they they kind of have a series of messages that they do wherever they go. And, uh, you know, so... I remember being a young Christian thinking that, you know, this was like the only time Ezekiel would have ever said this. But uh, then I remember being really blessed one time to realize that what we have recorded about the ministry of Jesus was really representative of his message and methods. He did and he said a lot more than is recorded for us in the Gospels. According to the Apostle John, if everything Jesus did and said were recorded, the world would not be able to contain the books. I'm not sure how many hard drives you'd need. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, and so it's interesting. And so when you see Jesus, I mean, he really gave the Olivet Discourse. He really gave those discourses. But you can see that through the three and a half years of his ministry, he was always hitting those themes, always talking about those issues wherever he went. Uh, and the same is probably true here for Ezekiel. Now, we know Ezekiel only spoke when God gave him the command to do so. The rest of the time he was uh, a mute uh, you know, God would keep his, him from talking. Uh, but he probably gave this message more than just this one time, and that's a blessing. Now, God was the source of these words. It's beyond comforting to know without doubt that the words we read in the Bible are the words God intended for us to hear and to understand. It is comforting to know that the Bible is, in fact, God-breathed and therefore authoritative. 
Any talk or study or sermon must be true to the text and its context. It must honor God's word as God's word or you're receiving essentially useless information. Uh, If somebody is uh, going to be liberal and say, well, maybe this contains the word of God or part of it is the word of God or this might be the word of God uh, or or whatever, then uh, it's it's useless to you. Uh, If it's not God speaking to you, in an authoritative sense, then uh, it's useless. Uh, And more and more, sadly, in the United States and uh, all over the world, really, in in Christendom, I guess we would call it, uh, more and more, even though people are saying, oh yeah, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, uh, nevertheless, we've developed an attitude of maybe I'll obey it and maybe I won't. It just kind of depends on how I feel and where I'm at at the time. Uh, and uh, it's, it's very interesting and that's why I love our congregation because uh, people here, we love the Word of God. Uh, the people are, you know, uh, uh, in a sense you hold my feet to the fire because I, I know I can't say anything weird because you'd rush me. Uh, you know, and, and the, the other day I, I, uh, I quoted from uh, an odd Bible ver- uh, uh, version and somebody came up and said, uh, "Hey, uh, what are you doing?" <laughs> and I said, "Hey, I told you where it was from, so I, I, it's precious, you know." The, and and so when I say these things, sometimes people say, "Oh, everybody, you know, thinks that the Bible is the Word of God and and they submit to it." But uh, more and more, you know, people, uh, you know, who claim to be Christians, they they pick and choose themselves, even though they would say, "Oh, yeah, the Bible is the Word of God." I, you know, I just don't feel like obeying that right now. Uh, God will forgive me or whatever kind of an attitude they have. And so in some senses, we've lost that fear of the Lord. So in verse 2, Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, O mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, to the hills, to the ravines and to the valleys. Indeed, I, even I, will bring a sword against you and I will destroy your high places. And so it was in the wilderness, or what we would call the wilderness, the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys, that the people were practicing their idolatry. In the city of Jerusalem, in the temple, they practiced at least outwardly Judaism and the worship of the one true God. Away from town, they cut loose and did as the Canaanites whose land they had conquered. Now, there are times that men seek to mix idolatry with the worship of God. They introduce practices borrowed from the world or from other religions, saying it somehow enhances our experience with God. (laughs) It strikes me as sad that men in the emergent church movement are introducing such practices and that believers, um, maybe sometimes unknowingly, but nevertheless are excited by them. Maybe you've had someone rave to you about the practice of what's called contemplative prayer. What is it? Well... One source defines it like this. Contemplative prayer, also known as centering prayer. It's a meditative practice where the practitioner focuses on a word and repeats that word over and over for the duration of the exercise. While contemplative prayer is done differently in the various groups that practice it, there are similarities. Contemplative prayer involves choosing a sacred word as the symbol of your intention to consent to God's presence and action within. Contemplative prayer usually includes sitting comfortably And with eyes closed, settling briefly and silently, introducing the sacred word as the symbol of your consent to God's presence and action within. When a contemplative prayer 
becomes aware of thoughts, she or he is to return ever so gently to that sacred word. Now, I'm sure as the author here said, there are variations in that. Nevertheless, it is essentially an exercise from Eastern mysticism. You find the same thing in New Age cults. The Bible presents prayer as a direct communication with God, not some mystical exercise. Along with many theological arguments against such a practice, consider this. Every now and then, you know, husband and wife might get to a point where uh, they just don't feel like they have time or life is, you know, kind of coming at you hard and and you're moving in a million different directions and you say, hey, we need to set aside some time to, to really communicate, to really talk. And so you set aside some time, you call it a date if you want, but you go someplace or even if, you know, maybe you don't go anyplace, but you're, you're there, you know, and stuff. And how would it be if you looked at each other and just started saying, potato? <laughs> what? Excuse me, I, I need to center myself. Potato. Oh, Potato. Of course, for me, it would be spaghetti, you know, or something like that. And, and we laugh. We think that's just so ridiculous. I mean, how about you, you? Speaking of potato, let's say you're at the purple potato and you're watching people at dinner and you say, oh, that looks like a lovely couple. It looks like they're maybe having a date. And then you keep looking over there and they're just kind of sitting totally relaxed. Waiter comes over saying, I don't want anything. Potato. No, I don't want a potato. Please, just I'm trying to center. My wife and I are trying to have a communication here. And then when it's over, say, honey, I just I've never felt so close to you. That's, a, that's essentially what you do in contemplative prayer. You figure out how to... And yet people do these kinds of things and they think, wow, I, I drew so close to God. I feel so... You know, because it's this kind of freak-out mysticism that, that you know... Uh, makes you feel and and you know so just you know have the boldness to tell your friends you're not going to do that and they shouldn't do it and uh, just tell them and if they do you have some fun with them and say yeah you have a centering word it's potato it's our whole church is into that and and, so, and bring out a potato you know <laughs> the problem with these practices as I indicated is that they make you feel as though you're drawing near to God on some mystical level when in fact you are building barriers to intimacy with him. Now Israel wasn't mixing false religion so much as they were doing it on the side. They were more like a Christian who worships God on Sunday and then lives like the devil during the week. One of the great things about being a Christian is that it makes you for the first time ever in your life a whole person. You were born dead in trespasses and sins. You were physically alive and soulishly active but spiritually dead. When you are born again, when you're born for the second time spiritually, your spirit literally comes alive within you. It now communes with the Holy Spirit who also indwells you. As a spiritual person, you can put your entire life in its proper order, spirit, soul, and body. Your spirit can direct your soul and you can use your body to serve the Lord. It's the first time that you've had anything like wholeness and been a real person in your entire life. All of this happens, however, in the world, the fallen world. And there are still mountains and hills and ravines and valleys that will beckon to you as you're seeking to walk on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. Some of them are wilderness places I once frequented before I was saved. Habits of the flesh, even addictions, still call. It's a spiritual version of the call of the wild. 
It starts out romantic and mysterious and forbidden, but it quickly becomes reprobate. Uh, you know, the, you're on that straight and narrow path, but there's the call of the wild from the world. Come over here. Whoa, look what's happening over here. And, and you, you, know, you might venture off the path a little bit here and there and a little bit here and there. And, and uh, you know, because it, it, it's a little bit forbidden, is it really sin? You know, and we start to tempt ourselves and all of that. And it quickly becomes reprobate. Some of these wilderness places will be new to me. As the world around me continues to deteriorate morally, I am confronted more and more by its values and philosophies, if you can call it that. They wear on me. They wear me down. They desensitize me. If I'm not careful, I become more like my surroundings, more like a mountain man than I really want to be, even though I'm uh, still walking with the Lord. And we used to sing a song whose lyrics were heartaches, broken people, ruined lives are why he died on Calvary. And, and you know what? That really strikes us because we were ruined, we were broken, and Jesus made us whole and made us real and elevated us to the place of being people uh, where God wants us to be and where he can work on us. And so when we wander off into some wilderness of this world, we risk becoming broken again. Not broken in a proper sense of having humility, but in a sense of falling apart. Because we think we can live in parts or in compartments after God has made us whole. And, and it just never works. You all know that it doesn't work. We all know this. You, know, you, you, you can't have your Christianity and then have something on the side. Cherish wholeness. Be the same at home and at work and in church. Don't try to live even a small portion of your life in secret. Be the same person. In verse 4, Then your altar shall be desolate, your incense altar shall be broken down. I will cast down your slain men before your idols, and I will lay the corpses of the children of Israel before their idols, and I will scatter your bones all around your altars. In all your dwelling places the city shall be laid waste, the high places shall be desolate, so that your altars may be laid waste and made desolate. Your idols may be broken and made to cease. Your incense altars may be cut down and your works may be abolished. The slain shall fall in your midst. You shall know that I am the Lord. God intimated here that there was a connection between their altars in their wilderness and their dwelling places in the cities. He kind of talks about them all in the same breath. Whoever the Israelites were while they were practicing idolatry in the wilderness, that's who they really were at home too. That, that's just who they were. They might have thought, as sometimes we think, that we can fool God or, you know, uh, whatever. But that's, he says, hey, whatever you're doing in the wilderness, I'm going to destroy that. I'm going to destroy the cities. I'm going to have to destroy everything because this is who you are now. God would bring their idolatry down upon them. He would give them what they had chosen for themselves. The end of idolatry is destruction and death. If you want to steer clear of the wilderness, then project ahead to the end result. The guy or gal who gives in to flirting at work doesn't ever see themselves committing adultery down the line. The truth is, though, every step away from integrity back into the wilderness actually brings you closer to the end. Uh, as soon as you get off the path and head down into the wilderness, you're that much closer to being lost down there. Even if you avoid going all the way into sin, you're still walking away from the Lord. You're still going in a wrong direction. Even if you're just standing there looking back, 
It's not a place where you want to be. We want to be, you remember, running the race, pressing ahead, looking to the finish. Uh, we don't have time for this kind of stuff, to, to veer off the path and into some mountain wilderness. God declares, you shall know that I am the Lord. Well, of course they knew it, but not in a way that made enough of a difference. Having done all he could to reach and warn his people for centuries, all that was left for him was to send punitive discipline. We talked about this last week. Why did God have to resort to this? How many centuries do you wait for people to repent? How many prophets do they have to stone and kill and, and you know, uh, ignore before you finally act? And this would work. A remnant would be preserved to return to the Lord. We read about them in verses 8 through 10. Yet I will leave a remnant so that you may have some who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered throughout the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations and they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. God is the one who introduces the picture of our relation to Him as a romance, uh, as a marriage. God considered Israel as a man uh, considers his wife. Their wilderness escapades were not mere exercises in comparative religion. They were adulterous affairs. And, and so, you know, sometimes I think you can have this idea, well, you know, I'm, you know uh, these Israelites, they were worshiping the Lord, but, and they're also over here just checking out these other religions and going through the motions, you know. God says, well, I guess that's one way of looking at it, but in reality, I feel like you're my wife and you're committing adultery. Let's, let's talk about it in that light. Note this phrase, I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me and by their eyes which play the harlot. In the Hebrew, this reads, you can't hide your lion eyes. No, not really. I just made that up. <clears throat> What for a pastor might be an interesting experiment by introducing some ancient but idolatrous practice. God would say, you're committing adultery. You're going after a, a, a strange woman. And so we want to be careful, don't we? <clears throat> as leaders or as people, we don't want to find these contemplative practices, these strange disciplines, these weird things and say, oh, maybe... You know, maybe this latest thing is what we want to be doing. No, because it's not an experiment. It's an adultery. What for me or you might be a momentary excursion back into the wilderness and off the narrow path, God says that's harlotry. You're acting like a harlot. I don't want to get to the reward seat of Jesus and hear any words like this, and I know that that's true of you as well. I think the romantic element of God's love for us should never be minimized. We should think of it more often. I've seen the eyes and the countenance of couples where one of them has to admit to their infidelity. I've seen hearts that are crushed and lives that are ruined, and so have you. It's something I can project onto my walk with the Lord if I'm not careful. Look at it this way. If I think of the Lord as a judge, that's true, isn't it? That's accurate. He is a judge. But let's face it, we all break certain laws because the consequences aren't that severe. Probably 90% of you speeded tonight on your way to church. 
Well, you know you did. Or you do. I do sometimes. It's rare because I drive like an old woman, but... <coughs> Actually, that's not fair. I drive like an old man that I am, but... But, uh, you know, we speed sometimes and we hope we don't get caught. You think, I wonder how much, you know, you, you ask the cops here, how far over the speed limit can we go? You know, at five miles. And they say, well, you know, five miles. What about six? Well, I don't know, maybe six. Eight? You know, you're trying to figure out in a 55 zone if you can really go 62. Or if 63 is the magic number and stuff, you know. Yeah, I see. Hit thumbs up back there, Terry. But, uh... <laughs> And that's how, you know, because so, you think, okay, I don't want to get a ticket, but I might not get one anyway. But if I get one, it's not any big deal. And if I happen to have to see the judge, what's the worst he can do to me? I, I pay my fine and I'm on my way. If I get to the judge, it's not that big a deal. But if I think of my Lord as I do my spouse with an intimate romantic connection, then any infraction is enough to crush the heart. And so I think what happens is we switch into judge mode. It's like, oh, I, I feel like sinning right now. I, I feel an impulse coming on. Good thing God is a judge who's very forgiving because I can go over here, I can do this. What's the worst that's going to happen to me? Of course, Paul would say we shouldn't sin, that grace might abound. But you know how it is. We all, we all fool ourselves. But if you're always thinking of your heavenly Father and your Lord and Savior in a more intimate relationship, then it's like, oh, I, this is, I don't want to do that. No, I, I really don't want to say potato because I, I, I want to say Jesus and mean it and have an uh, intimate face-to-face with my Lord. So Now, the Lord goes on to say, they will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations. A little bit of self-loathing can be a good thing. When you are committing abominable things, it is a good thing. God had to discipline them in order for them to see the real consequences of their idolatry. I'm certain he didn't like doing so, but it was the only thing left. He did not do it in vain, he said, but for a great purpose. Now, verse 11, thus says the Lord God, pound your fists and stamp your feet and say, alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by famine and pestilence. Commentators are all over the place on why Ezekiel was told to pound his fists and stamp his feet seems to me it was just a dramatic emphasis to get people's attention. Hey, wake up. Listen to me. This is real. Did you like that? Kind of a movement into the drama field there. Whew, man, glory. But anyway, pretty soon I'll be walking around the stage like a real pastor. But uh, anyway. (laughs) The specifics of God's punishment are laid out. If you're a nation and God is disciplining you as a nation, he's likely to use another nation against you. The sword was Babylon. Famine and pestilence would follow close on the heels of the sword. Verse 12, he who is far off shall die by pestilence. He who is near shall fall by the sword. He who remains and is besieged shall die by the famine. Thus will I spend my fury upon them. Here God spelled out what Ezekiel had acted out for 430 days outside his house. Verse 13. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when they're slain or among their idols all around their altars on every high hill and on all the mountaintops under every green tree and under every thick oak, whatever, excuse me, wherever they offered sweet incense to all their idols. If you could capture this as a photo, it would speak volumes. The Israelites would be scattered dead around the altars in the wilderness where they had chosen death instead of life. 
From God's perspective, that's what it looked like when they were out there committing their idolatry. They were still physically alive, but he knew that they had died in, in, in a very deep spiritual sense to his love. And, and he would ultimately just give them what they had chosen. So much, you know, people say, why would God allow this and why would God do that? And, and you know, according to Romans chapter 1 and many other scriptures, the Bible indicates that God just gives people what they ask for, what they want. They say, we have chosen to ignore you. We don't want you. We don't want your interference. We don't want your help. We don't want your advice. We want to live on our own. And God says, oh, okay, here you go. And, and you won't last very long. You can't. It only... It only lasts a few generations before it spirals down to something very wicked and terrible. Verse 14, So I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land desolate. Yes, more desolate than the wilderness toward Dibla in all their dwelling places. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Essentially, this says that all through the land of Israel, from north to south, there would be desolation. Their dwelling places would become just as desolate as the wilderness that they were going out into. Again, the imagery is powerful. The Jews thought they could live one way toward God in their cities, but worship Him another way out in the wilderness. God saw them as having one heart, and it was against Him, full of adultery. So He would make every place the wilderness to them. You've got the city, you've got the temple, you've got the presence of God in the temple. Wow. God dwelling among His people. And then the people, when it wasn't the Sabbath, saying, we're off to the mountains. You know, we're going to the valleys, we're visiting the ravine where the high places are, where the Asherah poles are, where the idols are, so that we can do this. And, and the Lord says, well, then I'm just going to make every place the wilderness since that's your choice. For the third time in this chapter, Ezekiel stated that as a result of the judgment, Israel would come to know that he is the Lord. Have you ever had a serious talk, let's say, with one of your kids, if you're a parent and said, hey, I'm your dad or I'm your mom. You ever said that? I've said that. I don't know if you've ever said that. I can't even think of a situation now because there's maybe only one or two times my kids ever disobeyed. But anyway, um, anyway, uh, but, you know, I've seen this. I've seen this. I've seen it in movies. But, you know, sometimes you're talking and you just say, you say, hey, I'm your dad. Is it because they forgot? No, but they were acting like they forgot. I'm your dad. I love you. This is for your good. Don't don't look at me like that. You knew this was coming. I told you because I'm your dad and that's what dads do. As God's kids, we don't forget he's our father, but we act as if he weren't sometimes. And, and he comes to us and he says, hey, I'm, I'm your dad. Or Jesus says, hey, I'm, I'm your bridegroom. And so if you hear anything tonight, may it be God the father saying, I'm your dad. And Jesus saying, I'm your bridegroom. And remember that we have, for all the other things that we do in our study and in our serving and with all the other relationships that we have and all the other metaphors and all the other precious things, that God says, I love you the way a husband loves a wife. And it's possible in some way that I can't understand really because God is just trying to, to really stir us up. He says, it's possible for you to crush my heart. Do you ever set out to do that with a person? Do you ever, would you look at your wife and say, you know, honey, I'm going to go to work today. I'm going to act in such a way that if you found out about it, it would crush your heart. It's just going to crush you. Or vice versa, husband. Or a son and a father, a mother and a daughter. I mean, you know, I mean, no one, no one does that. You don't say that. 
And, 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 and yet so often, you know, we, if, we, if we only think of God as a judge or a guide or one of these other things, God loves you. It's an intimate, romantic love. He is romancing his, romancing his saints. And uh, uh, rather than crush his heart, I want to fill his heart with the wonder of the joy of knowing his love. And I know you do as well.